Hello! Throughout this episode, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, and trauma. This episode specifically discusses observations, interactions, and perspectives regarding experiences of race, racism, ethnic considerations, and xenophobia. All experiences are individual and may not apply to everyone. However, understanding individual experiences can help us identify patterns that reflect larger systems wherein people have to navigate every day. We invite everyone listening to engage with empathy and an open mind. And as always, please take care of yourself as you see fit. What's something you know now that you wish you knew back then? The power of community, the power of grassroots efforts, The power of just asking, you know, approaching individuals, right? Coming together, building of community. As I had mentioned, kind of more of a a rookie uh, social worker, 20-year-old, I didn't know then the power that it has, right? And the effects, the positive effects or negative effects that can be. I want to say they're all positive, but with community building, um, with networking, with coming together, um, grassroots efforts as well, I think then... There was that, who can we go to, right? Who, who, who can take care of this for us? Well, there wasn't anybody here who, you know, a specific agency that we could send individuals to. Nope, we had to come together and figure it out together. So I would like to say that what I know now is the power of community building, community solidarity, and coming together to create the agencies that are needed to address those immediate needs. Welcome to Solo Eramos Niños. In this episode, we are exploring some of the community dynamics that arose in the aftermath of the raid. Together, we'll navigate community tensions and solidarity, factors that contributed to community systems, and through an interview with Professor Amanda Barandei, understand the ways in which support in Cash Valley has grown after the storm of the raid. I'm Angel Lopez. And I'm Shelby Lopez. Empecemos. As we began to understand the breadth, depth, and the impact of the Swift & Co. raid, we wanted to understand how this event played out and how the community changed as a result. Cache Valley is the community that brought me in and helped me grow. It has its own quirks and dynamics. And like anywhere else, there are lines that create communities within communities. Some of these lines fall along race and ethnicity, creating worlds of white communities and Hispanic and Latino communities. Lines along religion with those who are members of the LDS church and those who are not. And lines around the university on the hill with its student body and the rest of the families and individuals who make up the valley. In episode 3, we talked about proximity as an external resource concerning the degree to which an individual is impacted by a traumatic event. Shared identity and community, such as a person's race, their country of origin, or their status as an immigrant or first generation can draw a person in, bringing them closer in proximity to the trauma. So even though not everyone in the Cash Latine community had someone they knew be taken, shared identity and experience lent itself to a prevalence of fear throughout the valley. After the raid, it was a lot about laying low and keeping a low profile. I remember that afterward, it felt like my whole family's focus just shifted towards survival. As you heard Fran mention in an earlier episode, there were families who were too scared to even go out for groceries or other necessities and would rely on friends and the greater community to collect things for them. 
I also remember rumors exacerbated the fear of going out as it was heard that police and ICE were pulling Latina individuals over and asking for documentation. I couldn't find any articles confirming this information, but it was repeated by many we've spoken to. One of the few times we would go out would be once a week in search of reprieve and comfort to the St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church. The church provided refuge for the Catholic Latin community during these difficult times. I also know that other faiths provided the same refuge for their own. Talking a little more about my personal experience, my mother, like Loria and Jonathan's mother, had to work a lot during this time, and the rest of my family dealt with the situation the best way they could. Whether it was through distance, friends, or work, we all kept quiet and tried not to cause too much trouble. We didn't talk about it much, really. I remember when I was younger, I was scolded by my parents for talking to a friend about where they were from. And through this whole experience, much like others in the community, we all silently grieved by ourselves. As I mentioned earlier, like many communities, Cache Valleys has lines that create smaller segmented communities. Within one of those segments, I found a home with my fellow Latino friends. From joking around in Spanglish to watching them get in fights... My friend group was tight-knit, and I'm grateful for them because they brought a lot of peace during a challenging time. That time period is all a little fuzzy, but the bright spots I do remember were the small moments when my mom and siblings all came together over a meal, my friends hanging out and emulating our older siblings in creating MySpace profiles, and the many incredible teachers and community support that uplifted me at many times without even knowing it. In this podcast, I've come to understand that I was not alone in my experiences of fear and isolation, nor in my experiences of connection and community. The dichotomy of the raid in Cache Valley can really be highlighted by two statements from officials, as reported in a Salt Lake City Weekly article by Matthew LaPlante. On the one hand, Logan City Mayor Randy Watts, even years later, was frustrated in thinking about how ICE agents, quote, came in, broke apart a bunch of families, and left the community cleaning up the pieces, end quote. He reflected on the impact of the raid on the larger community, saying, quote, the community rallied. It had to rally, and it did. These were people who were living paycheck to paycheck, and all of a sudden, the breadwinner was gone. All of the churches, all of the denominations, the teachers at the schools, Everyone all of a sudden saw this need and reacted, end quote. On the other hand, Hiram City Mayor Dean Howard seemed almost flippant in his comment that the raid, quote, affected some individuals, but really didn't affect the community as a whole, end quote. This contrast of opinions, empathy, and apathy were varied throughout the valley, and as Mayor Watts said, the community navigated the aftermath and sought to tend to the broken pieces. While those who were in a position to do so rallied together to support many who were directly impacted, for the undocumented residents, fear hung in the valley like an inversion, driving families inside and out of sight. One of the biggest things that kind of made Logan a little bit of a darker town for a little bit was the fact that you would not see a single Latino out. Like, it was very rare that you'd see anybody. Like, it was just dead empty because of it. Short term, right, it was just, there was no contact. Maybe the community had a a massive distrust in Logan because of what had happened. And then the paranoia that started after that. Yeah, I think early on, they just had a massive distrust for the community. It's hard to kind of gauge what the interactions were like because the stores were empty. 
you know, there's other factors where you don't think about the fear of going to the store to get those pants and, you know, ice grabbing you out of the checkout line or something. It's may sound unreasonable now, but it's definitely a fear. And that was where we stepped in too. Like, and I'm not just saying just me and my family, like our church and our friends and stuff that could, it was, we understand there's people that are afraid to leave their house. So let's take them food. Let's make them some food. Let's make them turkey or whatever for that Christmas that was coming up. But even then, like, I remember this so vividly that we were knocking on someone's door. He's actually one of my best friends. I still talk to him, um, hang out with him every now and then. And one of the kids, his a Hispanic kid, and he's a kid, I don't blame him. He thought it'd be funny to shine a flashlight and say ice, which isn't very funny, right? And, like, they would not open the door. Like, we had to be like, no, like, this is, you know, we're so-and-so with the church or whatever, with the group. We're not ice. This is, you know, like whoever was just being an idiot to get them to open the door. And even then the risk was too great for them, you know, but I'll never forget that we were just standing on their porch and it was dark and it looked like nobody was home, but we knew people were home. But because some kid thought it'd be funny to say that and we couldn't give them what they needed that day. As we heard in the last episode, ice stayed in the valley for a significant time, perpetuating the feelings of fear and trauma over days and weeks. While it was one thing to have an external force such as ice leeching the sense of safety and trust from a place so many had made their home, it was quite another to feel a kind of hostility and insecurity from those who are supposed to be your neighbors. Following the raid, the quiet fault lines along the various identities and opinions split wide open. For some, the partitions between race and documentation status, even where you worked or where you went to school, suddenly became a chasm. The type of divisive rhetoric that began to be vocalized wasn't new, and we still hear similar sentiments today. Things like, if they didn't want to be arrested, they shouldn't have come here illegally. Or, it's sad for the kids, but their parents should have known better. At the time of the raid, community members who sought to mitigate harm, such as Jan and her fellow educators, were advised to stay on alert to escalating rhetoric. What I do remember being super careful of was listening for any kind of cruel remark that might have been made. And I remember, I don't know if it was someone that had said something or something that was written somewhere, but the the words go home were words that were really, really sensitive, that those words had been said or written somewhere and that we were all teachers were all really on the defense and watching out for that. As teachers took steps to create a sense of safety in the classroom, tensions among students outside of the classroom wound high. Tension was kind of high at Logan High. I remember like vividly it was lunch break, you know, Tino's kind of hung out in groups, you know, your various different groups. And then there's this grizzly bear in Logan High. And there's just a bunch of like kids that just like to cause trouble. And we were just sitting out there, and next thing you know, we just see this kid holding out, holding up a paper, and he's pointing at it, and it just says "Run, Immigration." There's this friend of mine that had that whose boyfriend was visiting, sees that sign, goes into into the lobby, and then it ends up just being this massive group fight. And so that just kind of shows you like how tense things were at that school during that time, and and, and I don't think it ever kind of changed. I mean. There's some pretty stupid people out there that will like kind of bring it up in the haha, like your chances are like you, you know, your parents or whatever, your next, whatever. And so you just kind of take a bunch of those insults and just kind of move on. I remember 
I hate to say it this way, but I, I remember the white kids, especially the white boys, making ice jokes or let's call ice this and that. And it's like, this is learned from adults. Like if, if an immigrant didn't know about ice, a white kid's not going to know about ice. Like, you know, and those jokes went on to the day, you know, I graduated. I, I always heard those jokes, not directed towards me, but in the hallway or to other people. That was a big issue with, with the school part of it. And then I think, honestly, it sounds really weird, but I think that made the Hispanic population of, you know, eighth and ninth grade a little tighter because, you know, obviously people's families were broken up or, you know, they weren't because they got lucky or whatever. And it's just, it's something that everybody could relate to, I think, or most. Well, in some ways, the raid divided the community. Many Latine children and teens found strength and safety among their Latine peers, finding friendship and community with others of shared identities and life experiences is often important in helping children and teens form their self-image and build connections. But in Cache Valley, the raid wasn't the only factor that had brought Latine kids together. For years, the school system itself was inadvertently segregating its Latine student population. Why that division happened, um, besides I think that just naturally does happen, but um, at Mount Logan, so we, we worked in, we, we had teams, you know, and our kids were on teams. And for quite a number of years, we put all ESL kids on one team. So that made that team super heavy with Latino kids. And as, as those years went on and we realized what was going on, we realized that was really aggravating the separation. We were segregating our kids into teams. And so after several years, and Angel, I, don't, I think it was even after you guys left um, Mount Logan, we finally smartened up and, and said, we can't have all the ASL kids on one team. But it was not a good idea at all because there was no integration. That, but yeah, as, as, you, as you hit high school, that was less so. But through 6th, 7th, and 8th, you were divided. The, the history of the after-school club changed. You know, it was it was Connie Beacom. She was just the most wonderful person in the world. And she was the ESL teacher at South Cash. The kids would come in the morning and they would stay in her room till school started. They would go there and eat lunch. And then we had after school club in her room for the kids, you know, to stay so they'd be safe until their parents got home. Kids from the high school came over that were from her past classes, so we, so we had some of her past students come over from the high school and they'd be there hanging out. And we just tried to do like activities and help with homework and, and do stuff like that. But it was all cloudy and it was all in a room. Kind of unknown to us, there was an actual official after-school club going on at the school that none of our kids were included in. After that, like anything that happened at the school, kids in Latino Youth Club got blamed. Somebody vandalized the gym. It was the kids in Latino Youth Club. Somebody was running around in the hall after school. It was Latino Youth Club. You know, I, I complained about it to the school that why are we part of after-school? 
you know, we're a club too. Why are we part of the regular after-school club? And the person at the school district didn't know that we weren't even part of the after-school club. So we had this series of meetings. They made a template, like, registering the kids that were in, in the Latino Youth Club. So we had all these meetings. And then my group of tutors, we used to meet every Wednesday night up in the Taggart Student Center to plan the next week's activities. And so Connie came to our planning meeting, and, and she said, I don't care if the kids are registered. I don't care what the school says. I want the kids in my room after school. So what we're going to do is we're going to have the kids in my room after school. And if they come over from the high school, we will welcome them. And we will close the door. And we will do our activities. And we will continue as we were. Yeah, so there was there were some changes that came around. And, you know, not all of it was good. I think a lot of that's that's changed now. I mean, Connie, Connie retired. A new ESL teacher came. Uh, the kids are now just integrated into the regular after-school club. You know, so over time, there's been, there's been some positive shift. Though the raid both illuminated and further wedged dividing community lines in Cache Valley, it also opened doors for compassion, love, and solidarity. Más unidos. Creo que trataron de... The community was more united. I think that they overall tried to support people. I was in contact with the Catholic Church. They tried to help people with their bills, whether it was their electric, gas, or small things that they could help with because there were several people who were affected. There were full families that worked there, mom, dad, and siblings. It was a big impact because there were families where they took mom and dad, and there were many children who were left alone. But the community supported each other. The main change was seen in the unity of the people, who would try to help in different ways. The impact was the same for the people who were working without documentation. There was a lot of fear, but unity also. There was also a lot of support. I think the community was, on the whole, kind of appalled by the whole thing, you know, in, in general. That, that was my feeling. It's like I didn't hear anybody say, well, it's about time or, you know, anything like that. I, I heard everybody that I talked to or that was around me was, was seriously appalled by it. And I think I think a lot of people in the community kind of rallied and tried to, to help out, tried to help the families that were affected. There was a lot of like donations, you know, Christmas things and food and stuff like that. Like I think the, the community kind of like rallied to try to provide Christmas for some of the kids. You know, I think like the Catholic Church especially kind of took over helping out. After it was over and after Christmas was over and life was back to normal, I don't I don't know. I think that just kind of everybody just moved on. Families and individuals across the valley saw that their neighbors were hurting and afraid, especially the children who found themselves torn from one or both of their parents, and so many launched into action to try and meet these needs. Teachers, religious leaders, and concerned neighbors did what they could to reestablish a sense of stability in the chaos. I remember like parents saying words of encouragement to the other parents or to the kids or were families or houses with just kids. You can't call child protect like that's that's not gonna help anybody. So, you know, I just remember my parents always especially my mom. My mom is hundred percent this type of person to just wanna give people, you know, like how do you say I guess in Spanish like animal, you know, like you know, to maybe just keep themselves together and, and to trust that they're gonna get help. You know, there are people coordinating to 
get people back over the border or get kids to Mexico or wherever, you know, but like, I obviously wasn't part of those conversations, but I do remember hearing about them or just sitting next to him and hearing that stuff. You know, I became aware of immigration at that point. Like they do actually go and scoop people up and not just in El Paso or something like that. They will go anywhere. And so I think at that point I was like, okay, I should maybe learn some rights. I think someone made a flyer around that time about um, immigrant rights and stuff like that. I, th I remember it being like, you don't have to let them hold your green card. You don't have to give them your name that you're not police, this and that and the other, you know? So I remember that part. You know, like a lot of these, unfortunately, illegal people were concentrated around the trailer parks um, that we knew of because that was kind of our church area, right? I remember they got way more tight-knit with themselves and with other people in the community to, you know, either give heads up that there's police or ICE or whoever or suspicious vehicle around or if they felt uncomfortable or didn't think they could go somewhere because of either paranoia or whatever due to immigration they would call somebody else that they knew could. And by that, I mean someone with papers, right, to go to the store, take their kids to the hospital or whatever. But yeah, I think I think it just became closer, more tight-knit for several years. I do feel like later on, like much later on, the community has kind of gone back to, not normal, I don't like that word, but, you know, maybe a little less close. I, I want to say I built a better relationship with the rest of the Hispanics in Hiram. It's, it's weird, like, during my time, they were in their own group, and I grew up in a very, very white neighborhood, and so I hung out with a lot of white people. But I think it helped me open that door to hanging out more with Hispanics and being more with them, and ultimately, you know, I felt way more comfortable that way. It's crazy, because I feel like almost every, if not every Hispanic in Cache Valley knows someone that was affected personally through the raid. They they came up and they stuck around and no one knew what they looked like and we all heard about these shady tactics that they use and so everybody was afraid of everybody, not even just Caucasian men. Like there's Hispanics that work for ICE too. So like I will say one thing about that mutual aid, especially with the church, is at one point the church said we're not helping people that aren't members, so our baptisms went way up so that people could get help, right? Um and you know, and people obviously oh, because church is here to help this and that. And it makes me believe in this being the true church. I was like, whatever, you just need some help. And that's fine. Like, I would do the same thing. So much of the long-term impact is invisible. And for children, many of whom were not told to discuss their parents' immigration status, that fear became a silent shadow. In my case, no one truly knew the depth of what was going on in my family. When we interviewed Jan, she herself mentioned that she had absolutely no idea that something like that was going on in my life. We were able to get some additional support at school when my older sister spoke to a trusted counselor, and they were able to get us some additional support with classes, although it felt like the school itself didn't really know how to provide support for us. Um, and honestly, I didn't really know what support looked like to me then. Angel and I moved out from Utah to Georgia in the summer of 2021. While that move is nowhere near as intense or wrought with loss as immigrating to another country, in the 2,000 miles between Utah and Georgia, we found ourselves without the communities we had built throughout our lives. Soon after moving, I started my program at UGA, and as a social worker, I choose to focus on macro levels. This means looking at and working with communities and systems. So at the same time I lost my immediate community, I was suddenly taking a deeper look at what it means to be in community 
and the impact of community on an individual. Needless to say, I've been thinking about and saying community a lot. What does it mean to have a community, to be a part of one? And how do you support individuals through connection and community? To try to answer these questions and understand these answers in the wake of the raid, we connected with people who are engaged in community support. One of these people is Amanda. My name is Amanda Barrandey. My descent, I'm Mexican-American. Um, I am currently practicing as a licensed clinical social worker, as an assistant clinical professor at Utah State University. Um, so that's my role. But I've been uh, practicing here in Cache Valley and Box Elder County for about uh, 20 years now, just working in the community. I think my most cherished role, though, is that of being a mom of three. My oldest is 20 and my youngest is 12. In discussing her role as a social worker, Amanda described to us what drew her to the field. So I've always been uh, an individual who has enjoyed working with people, um, being like in a helping profession. I started off in nursing, then education, and then landed in, uh, landed in social work. But uh, particularly and specifically, I've always enjoyed working with um, the Latino community, um, more so just being a voice for them um, in a very culturally responsive way, in a cultural sensitive way where, you know, they are listened to and there isn't a set agenda or expectations for them to meet in order for me to assess them. So uh, social work was just very promising for me uh, because there was a variety of avenues that I could participate in. I am passionate of case management and community advocacy. And so that, you know, that is exactly why, okay, I didn't have a degree when the raid happened, right? Um, that particular year. However, I, I knew how to do the work and get the work done. And so just uh, grassroots efforts. Um, also, I'm passionate about of a group of people coming together and like, okay, let's get the job done. Um, I, I know individuals here in this town who have these connections or have these resources and just coming together to to serve has always been a passion of mine of, of just building community. Um, and I'm able to do that with uh, social work. Amanda and her family called Cash Valley home. At the time of the raid, Amanda was pursuing her undergraduate degree at Utah State. She told us more about the day of the raid from her perspective. It's a loaded question because I actually have like a vivid memory of that day. Um, and I remember hearing of it. As I mentioned, I was un, I was currently in the undergrad social work program. Um, and so I think I had a full day of like work and classes and then hearing about it. I just remember where are we going to meet? Like I, I went into like action planning mode um, and then got word that we would be meeting at St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic church here um, in, in Hyde Park. Um, and I remember we just gathered together as a community, not necessarily if you um, were a part of that religion, but we just came together, had a set place to action plan to also just to kind of sit and reflect on, okay, what's the next step? Um, because so many families were impacted, particularly um, the town of, of Hiram, uh, although we had various uh, uh, individuals across the valley and even in Box Elder County, Hiram was really highly impacted where, of course, um, E.A. Miller, JBS, Swift Company, I can't remember the title of at that particular time because they've just named, but just coming together, a lot of tears, a lot of emotion, kind of a, a sense of feeling of what's next. Uh, we were in shock, if you will. We had never experienced something like this at that level, the level of impacting the entire community. 
Um, and so personally impacted me, you know, I remember my father worked at that time at uh, JBS um, and just him too being a supervisor, like that was just like an entire half of my people power. Um, what What is tomorrow going to look like? Not just that, but they were friends, you know, building that friendship and then he, him being impacted as well of, you know, I know they have children, the children are going to come home to an empty home. And so it, it did, although I feel very blessed and fortunate that it didn't impact per se my father in in a way that you know he was deported or faced you know deportation it, it did impact our family though because of long hours for him having to be gone and and to work more right as well as myself of being fearful for others in the community and just the sense of fear um there was often threats made or i, I don't want to call them myths because i'm nobody to invalidate um you know the communication that was going on but you know, the entire undocumented community being fearful of, of ICE coming to their place of employment or to their home. And so the, just this blanket of insecurity and fear, you know, that I per se wasn't feeling myself, but just that level of compassion and empathy that just was, was unimaginable, really. As we've heard again and again, the impact of the raid was multifaceted. The immediate needs for safety and survival and the greater economic impacts all buffeted against a new founded distrust. The immediate impact um, that is really vivid in my, my mind are the basic needs of survival, of you starting to panic, of some of the individuals who were faced with deportation or were deported, they were the sole breadwinners. And so the then the parent at home is found, like, do I find a job or what? how am I going to support my children? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to pay the mortgage, et cetera? Um, so basic needs like survival, if we're thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those basic needs were those the immediate needs. Um, I happened to be uh, working in Logan School District at the time of the raid, and I did have students who the next day didn't show up because they didn't have a ride to school because maybe their parent who stayed home, they didn't drive or just that fear again. So the immediate impact was on education. I seen it was on rent. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay utilities? Um, some, some, for some children, both parents were deported, right? And so we had a number of children left without their parents. Um, so that were, those were the immediate needs, if you will. We still seen some of those needs, but the fear and, you know, the economy here being impacted as well here in, in the Valley, um, educational needs as well. The distrust, I don't know that it's ever came back, if I'm being honest, right, of, of being able to trust even community leaders as myself of like, are you really telling me the truth? You know, can I trust you because of this? You know, it, it's still the topic of talk, if you will, sometimes, hey, you know, te acuerdas? do you remember um, when I showed up unexpectedly? You know, you, you never know when that could happen again. The previous administration, you know, um, the impacts of coming back to, oh my gosh, like, this can happen any day again. Um, so education was the long run, the economy here, and again, just the, the level of distrust that really, really, um, we had to become creative in our approaches to um, convincing individuals that we were safe and for them to, again, be comfortable with accepting resor needed resources, but that they had that the level of distrust or disbelief that this person really wants to help me and, and this isn't going to put me in, in harm's way or in danger. Yet, those dedicated to meeting those needs sought ways to provide support in any way they could. 
very much grassroots based. Faith leaders and so priests, bishops in the area, they were the people who, I guess, and this is my own opinion or perspective, that for the most part, community members trusted, right? And so we'd always want to connect with them, have them be the ones to communicate messages or resources that were available to the members. And also our different religions, right? And I'm speaking not just the Catholic Church, but the LDS Church, the Christian Church, providing funding from their congregations because support from, you know, the state or from nationwide wasn't going to happen. Um, and so really them stepping up and providing resources from private donators. And again, coming together and asking for the community to come together um, to support rents being paid, groceries being delivered, et cetera, you know, to, to meet those survival needs. But I think our faith-based agencies really played a huge part in um, being able to spread the word and again, let the community know that they could trust them. Amanda echoed the sentiments of many in the Valley, from Gloria to Mayor Watts, and emphasizing the overwhelming care and solidarity of those in the community. Um, I would like to say that I feel that the level of solidarity definitely was apparent at that time where everybody, regardless of differences, if values or whatever it may be, you know, we all gathered and came together to support the community, including not just, you know, the, the, the Latinx or the Latino community, but the entire Cache Valley community, I would like to say that. It, it, it's challenging me for, for me to answer this question because I really want to be able to speak particular to that time and point, right? Because now where we're at is completely different. Um, however, at that point in time, I do want to say that it, we were more unified as a community, in general, regardless of uh, you know ethnicity, religion, race, regardless of any of those. I do want to say there was more a higher level of cohesion and solidarity. I think it was very minimal in regards to like differences per se. I do remember, you know, some headlines coming out or letters to the editor of how is it possible that we as a valley support, you know, illegals, if you will, or um, illegal actions of, of supporting, you know, people to work illegally here in, in Cache Valley. But I, I do think it was that was very minimal. It was it was the positive weighed out the negatives. As a social worker engaged in grassroots work and community building, Amanda spoke to the community action and resources that have been created since the raid, while also recognizing the gaps in services that could leave behind the marginalized most at risk of another raid more seasoned individuals, if you will, um, at that point in time. So took initiative to write to legislation, write to uh, the state capital, write, you know, to, what is my place? How can we get more services here in our particular valley? Or even just here, um, starting that here of, of securing funding from the cities. And the year after, in 2007, so I remember uh, the, the Department of Workforce Services received like grant funding for a program to work specifically with a refugee community. Um, once those monies were um, pooled, if they weren't renewed, um, Nelda Altislin, also a huge community advocate um, specific to our refugee community, and Dr. Jessica Lucero, years down the road, um, 
started grassroots, right? Just finding private donators, um, applying for grants. Um, later on, went on to um, start a 501c3 called CRIC, Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection. They specifically serve refugee and immigrant communities. Um, they strive every day to make sure they are up to date with current uh, immigration issues that could impact our community and are ready to come together to provide that safe hub. If something unfortunately were to happen again. That wasn't in place in 2006. That that was non-existing. The closest place you could co go to receive any type of legal advice orientation was Catholic Community Services because of course you couldn't afford a private attorney. Maybe some if they had support from family or you know other funding, but that was the closest place and then the list was long and years if I, I'm being I, I'm not being dramatic, years down the road to obtain that consultation. So um that's an example of, I guess, the differences and what has came about since then. CRIC, Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, is huge. The English Language Center has always been very supportive. There's a lot of individuals. I would say they're pretty trustworthy as well in, in regards to like the community trust in them because a lot of our community attends there from all ethnicities and races, right? If their English is their second language, they attend there to learn English. They have expanded tremendously. They are now a bigger organization. Um, I think so too, awareness, just awareness that unfortunately we experienced that I'm one to always try to take the strengths out of the negative or a positive out of a negative, but I think this definitely spread awareness of what it looks like for an individual to be faced with deportation. It's not just that individual who's impacted. It's the entire family system as well as other systems, you know, as I had mentioned, workforce systems are impacted, our economy is impacted, like it, there's levels of impact that that, that happens. So Crick definitely won, um, as I mentioned, the, the ex extended services at the ELC, something, this is kind of deviating on the flip side of that, but is still lacking is housing support. And housing here is very limited at the time. I can't even imagine what that would look like, you know, if uh, unfortunately something similar were to happen where a large portion of our community is facing deportation of what that would look like in regards to basic needs, again, like housing. Here, it's still very challenging to obtain housing. It didn't look like that way previously, but now now it is. And so um, when COVID happened, the pandemic, that was a huge talk and priority of us community organizers and leaders of what is that going to look like, even just with the pandemic, you know, the struggles with housing. Um, was huge. So that's still lacking housing, affordable and livable. I was just having this conversation about a month ago at another meeting, but we need immigration services as far as like legal advice, legal services here that are accessible. Because again, I think a lot of underdocumented and undocumented individuals actually would qualify to obtain documentation. However, because of lack of resources, because of lack of uh, advice, if you will, or orientation, a lot of individuals don't obtain it. I don't remember the numbers. I wish I did and I wish I was prepared with them, but it was something along the lines of 2,600 individuals as of a month ago qualify for legal documentation here in Cache Valley. However, they have not pursued that. Whatever those reasons may be, that's those are the huge gaps that we have here. And, and I don't bring this up because, you know, it's 
my interest that they, you know, the individuals be residing here documented. That's not my agenda. How My agenda is, though, to be able to advocate for those individuals and to educate them and provide available resources to them accessible resources. That's the trick, accessible. Because if I have, you know, a private attorney practicing here in town where there are some in charging seven to $10,000 for the legal process, I mean, now where we're at, who can afford seven to $10,000? So accessible immigration services, legal services, it's definitely a huge gap. And if I'm being honest, that's the only thing that comes to mind because for the most part, I am proud to say, I believe our, our smaller town, not so small anymore, um, has a, a variety of accessible resources. Of course, also I'm a huge advocate of providing those services in a very culturally competent and responsive and sensitive fashion, which I think we could improve there, but there's a lot of individuals doing amazing work that I have joined where hopefully we can get to that point where all agencies are practicing in a culturally sensitive and responsive matter. Just like the many others we've spoken to, Amanda, even as a mental health provider, had not taken the opportunity to reflect and connect on the raid. I remember having conversation in that moment. I hadn't really reflected on it, if I'm being honest. And so when I was reviewing your questions, I was like, wow, you know, and I, and emotions surfaced. I don't know that I had ever even allowed myself to do that or go there because back then in my practice, it was, I, you almost didn't allow yourself to do that because then you can't best help individuals. Maybe that's true in some circumstances, but I think throughout the years, something I've learned is, you know, again, self-reflection is essential. It's necessary to really gauge where you're at. And so, no, I actually hadn't at this level um, ever shared my experience or, or had a discussion in this particular fashion. No, but something that really surfaced and here comes the emotions. You know, I think I want to focus on gratitude. I am the next couple of days. I'm going to focus on how grateful I am to be blessed with not having to live that fear personally. My, my daughter did experience that her father, not part of this JBS raid, but her father, her biological father was deported. And so just seeing that impact that it had on my own daughter, you know, I, I just being grateful that I always knew that that would never happen to me. And I, I would always be there you know I, I would have that opportunity to be there for my children and and my father as well I never lived that fear where one of my parents would be deported and so just being really grateful for having that privilege just want to make sure I take a moment just to validate you know just taking the time to validate that every experience is different just because of what I've shared today doesn't mean that that's how it is you know generalizing that that's the experience of everybody's this is my own personal perspective and experience um, and I, I just want to put on the record and, and make it heard that I validate everybody's individual experience. You just got to realize that everybody's going to be on your tail from five o'clock until the day you die. On the next episode of Solo Eramos Niños, we will explore ways that you can get involved in your own community to create movements of solidarity and work toward a welcoming future for all. What I had mentioned before, you know, not to shy away from asking. Even if you'll, you'll encounter and you will confront many no's. Nope, there isn't funding. Nope, that's not needed. Nope, there's not an interest. Well, then prove that it is. Hasta la próxima. Solo Eramos Niños was written, produced, and edited by Angel Lopez and Shelby Lopez. Music by Chris Illig. Cover art by Alexis Rausch. Keep up with this story and others like it by subscribing to Solo Ramos Niños wherever you get your podcasts. 
Please rate and review and follow along with us on Instagram. And now TikTok at Solo Ramos Pod. Featured audio clips are from original interviews with Gloria, John, Fran, and Amanda. By 7 o'clock tonight, we'll be out of the country and you'll never see us again. Thank you to all those who were interviewed. We recognize your courage and hope to honor your story.